Dear friends, we have this very, very familiar passage with us here that has some slight variations from the same prayer that we find in, in Matthew. So let's go ahead and read through that passage. It is Luke chapter 11, and we'll be looking at the first four verses of chapter 11 in Luke. And it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when, his, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." We have within this narrative a time where Jesus is praying. They likely heard Jesus praying many times throughout His ministry, and they heard Him pray, and they noticed certain things about His prayer, and they desired for Him to teach them how to pray, teach us to pray as you are praying even. It's very likely they were hearing His prayer, and they desired to learn more about why it is He prays the way that He does, or how it is that He is praying. And this prayer is what is known as the Lord's uh, Prayer. It's been called the Lord's Prayer as early as we can find it, going back even into a writing called the Didache. You find that in the second century. So going back even to the first century, it was called the Lord's Prayer as long as we, we have records of it. Um, this is a prayer, though, I would argue, is a prayer that Jesus could never rightly pray himself. There are aspects of this prayer that are not relevant to Jesus. For instance, he says, forgive us our sins. Well, Jesus didn't need his sins forgiven. There was no reason for Jesus to ever ask anyone for forgiveness. There was no reason that Jesus ever had to ask God for forgiveness. He was perfect. He's the sinless lamb of God. If Jesus needed to ask someone for forgiveness, then we are without hope. We are in dire straits. We are in deep trouble. We don't have a Savior. We don't have peace with God if Jesus ever needed to ask forgiveness to someone. But he's offering this prayer here as a model. You need to understand, this is a model for the disciples. He is giving to them particular principles that need to inform their prayer. This is not intended, although it can be prayed, it can be repeated, and we should not use it as vain repetitions, but it is acceptable to use this prayer corporately. It's designed to be corporately. That's how it is taught. It's, but the idea is this is a model. This is an example. There's principles that are here within this that we need to apply and understand within our prayers as a whole. It doesn't mean that every single component of this prayer needs to be in every prayer that you ever give, but you are praying with these principles in mind. You are praying with these considerations and these understandings. Now, the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to pray is something that was consistent and normal for rabbis and their disciples. Rabbis would give disciples particular ways of praying, particular ways that they should go about uh, praying. John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray in a particular way, and that's what they're referencing. They're saying, well, John taught his disciples to pray. Would you teach us to pray? Some would get much more elaborate. Um, remember the Pharisees, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. It would be a time of fasting and 
prayers, and Jesus did not participate in this tradition. It was fine for the Pharisees to do that. If they wanted to do that, it was fine for them to lead their disciples in doing that. It was inappropriate for them to judge other people as being less spiritual than themselves because they didn't follow these particular traditions. It was especially inappropriate for them to judge Jesus as though there was something deficient in Jesus spiritually because He was not following after these traditions. Jesus' point is, there is no need for my disciples to fast while the bridegroom is here. They can fast when I'm not here. But what He gives His disciples here is a very simple model to pray, and there's great depth even in the simplicity of this prayer. I want to bring your attention to this idea as well, to bring you this reminder that when we have passages like this that are very, very familiar, we need to pause for a moment. And we've had a lot of these recently, and as we keep going through this gospel, there will be um, many famous parables. Some of these parables are only contained in the gospel of Luke, and we've got to be mindful of these parables as we come to them, that we don't project too much of our understanding onto these parables and these texts. And this is one as well that is not a parable. It is a model prayer, but we need to be mindful that we don't project too much onto it and distract ourselves from what is there. And my desire for you in this sermon as we walk through, as we introduce even this prayer, is to um, recognize the importance of the beginning of this prayer. The very first line, Father, hallowed be your name. And we're going to emphasize the very first part, the very first word even in that sentence. This is a very easy line to read and just move on, to go on and emphasize or focus on aspects of this prayer that are more relatable or that you might, may find to be more pertinent to you at this time, moving on to your supplications and the things that you desire or the ways in which you want God to work or to change particular things. And we're going to walk through those aspects of God's kingdom coming and us praying even our supplications that even in that, that they would coincide with God's kingdom and His, His will. But I want to emphasize this first portion here. Father, hallowed be Your name. And I think in this sentence we see two very important theological concepts, and they're large words, but they're important words. And we see two things. We see imminence and transcendence. We see imminence and we see transcendence. In calling God Father, we have this idea of, of imminence, God being with you there. The Lord even walking alongside you. The Lord, even you're calling Him Father. There is a familial relationship that is there. And this is a very dear and important familial relationship that you need to recognize, understand, and believe as a Christian. And when you are going to the Lord in prayer, you need to carry this along with you. Now, so that we don't run too far off and we don't um, get too casual, we need to also understand God's transcendence, that there are ways in which God is very, very different and distinct from us. God is not your peer. He's, he's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's not to be considered and approached in a, in a, in a casual or disrespectful way. We must be mindful of that as well. We, we, we don't want to 
approach God in such a way that He is so far off and we can say we, we have no right whatsoever to approach your throne. No, we sing, boldly I approach the throne of God. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. And in seeing God's eminence and His transcendence, it greater reveals His glory to us. We see the ways that He has condescended to us, the ways in which He has shown Himself to us through the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus. So I want to deal with this, this first point, and that is of the, the eminence of God. I think we can overlook this fact and refer to God as Father, begin our prayers as Father God, and not fully grasp the significance of what we're doing, not fully grasp even how people in the first century might have heard something like this and been uncomfortable at first or, or not, not quite sure, like, is, does that still sound right? So let's look there at verses 11 and verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name, God our Father. Jesus begins this model prayer for His disciples by addressing God as as Father. Now, there is a very common activity in our culture, and it has been here, I would say, for a few centuries, and that is this idea. It's not just our culture. It's, it's others in Western culture. To ref, refer to all men everywhere as, as brothers, as this universal brotherhood of, of man, as, as all people in a brotherhood, all people being children of God. You'll hear politicians make such a statement that all people are, are children of God. And I want to begin here in our understanding of this prayer and addressing God as Father and dismiss this idea, dispose of this idea that all people are children of God. I want to dispose of this idea that there is this universal brotherhood of man, that all people everywhere are equal in the sight of God. That is not at all what we see within the Scriptures. In fact, you are born in a very opposite position in relation to God than being a child of God. It's the exact opposite. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. John goes so far as to say this, 1 John 3, we read 1 John 5 in our New Testament reading today. But John goes so far as to say this, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3 of 1 John, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Paul puts people in two categories. Paul. John puts people in two categories here. 
those that are children of God and those who are children of the devil. He did not believe in this universal brotherhood. He did not believe that all people everywhere were children of God. Jesus, interacting with the Pharisees, said they were children of the devil. We see that in John 8, beginning in verse 39. It says, Then they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works uh, that your father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus did not believe in this concept of the universal brotherhood of man. Jesus did not believe that all people were children of God. And we have significant testimony here within the Scriptures to likewise ourselves recognize and understand that this is not, although it may make a nice political slogan, although people may use it for fundraising and for humanitarian reasons, we have reasons to help people in humanitarian needs, but it's not because all people everywhere are children of God. You can understand that all people are made in the image of God. They are to be respected because they are made in the image of God, and they are distinct out of all the creatures that God has made. But you become a child of God through the new birth. You become a child of God through regeneration. You are not born a child of God. There's two categories and only two that are there. So we must understand that this prayer is an instruction for those who are disciples of Jesus, those who have come to Jesus by grace and through faith. It would be very bold for one to call God Father when He was not their Father. It would be very bold to call God your Father when you are a child of the devil. In the first century, Jews would have found this to be very bold to pray in this manner. This isn't how rabbis taught their disciples to pray. You can even see how they responded to Jesus in John 10, beginning in verse 28. Look at how the Jewish leaders responded to Jesus in John 10 when He speaks of God being His Father. It says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father, who has given them to Me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself to be God. 
Now, we, we will not understand us calling God our Father and Jesus calling God our Father to be the exact same thing. But I, what I want you to see here within this passage in particular is the way in which they responded to Jesus even making such an assertion. This wasn't a t- common title for God in the Old Testament. You find Father as a title for God only 15 times in the entirety of the Old Testament, and none of these, none of these are instances of prayer. But look at the New Testament. Consider how God being our Father is used in the New Testament. You see it used 65 times in the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called Synoptic Gospels because they have great similarities in the ways in which they are written. You see it mentioned 65 times, and then it's over 100 times in the Gospel of John. Consider the differences that are there. The term of the Old Testament had to do more with God uh, being a provider for Israel than it was a particular family relationship or in most especially an individual familial relationship. Now, the terms that are used here that we need to understand, um, Jesus most likely wasn't speaking Greek. He was speaking Aramaic. That's what we we understand. There are times where you see the Aramaic come out. There's times where the writers of Scripture will actually write out uh, the Aramaic that He says. You say that um, right before He dies on the cross, and you see it also here in in Mark 14, where we have this idea of Abba Father, Mark 14, 36. And He said, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And this idea of, of Abba Father is um, it's an Aramaic term, and it is a term that a, a child would have called his father. Not just children, but even an adult would have called uh, his father. It's very much a, a familial uh, term. There is a scholar named Jacob Jeremias, and he he's one of the most influential scholars in the New Testament over the past century, and he's done significant work in this area and also dealing with the Lord's prayer, and he's done significant work such that pretty much everyone agrees that the term that Jesus would have been using here in the Lord's prayer would have been this idea of Abba, Father, this, this endearing term between a child and their father. Jeremiah makes this point. He says, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes His disciples to repeat the word Abba after Him. He gives them a share in His sonship, empowers them as His disciples to speak with their heavenly Father in just such a familiar, trusting way as a child would with his father. This is how the prayer is beginning with the, the nearness of God, the nearness of you, dear Christian, to God. Dearest Father is how the prayer is beginning. This is no small thing. This is a, a great significance. When you read this prayer, I want you to seriously consider this idea of calling God your Father. When you begin a prayer and say, Father God, don't think past that too quickly. Recognize, recognize the the chasm that has been filled there through Christ and His work. Recognize that, 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 that giant canyon that was there separating man and God, and how Christ has been that bridge, not through natural birth, but through the new birth, 
through the work of the Word and the Spirit and through the regeneration of the sinner, through that sinner trusting in Christ alone. Salvation by grace and through faith, resulting in this familial relationship, this adoption of the Christian into the family of God. So does this mean that when you call God your Father, that it is the same as when Jesus calls God Father? Absolutely not. It's not the same for a great, great number of reasons. Jesus' relationship with the Father is eternal. Yours is not. You are finite. You're not like Jesus. Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus has always existed. Jesus did not become God. I actually talked to someone once. The man claimed to be a pastor. And I asked him if Jesus was eternal. And he said, well, I don't know. I'm still thinking on that one. Well, you've got a problem there with the deity of Christ. You, you can't become God. God has always existed. God is eternal. If, if God were to go from being in a state of non-existence to being in existence, that, that would be a change. Okay, God cannot change. God is immutable. He's unchanging. It's impossible for God to change. Were God to change, that would require for Him to do that which is not possible for God to do. It would be like Him being God and not being God at the exact same time. That's absurd. It's not possible. Jesus in the John 17 prays His high priestly prayer, and He speaks of this love that the Son and the Father had for, for one another in eternity past. We read even in Ephesians 1 of the covenant made between the Son and the Father in eternity past, this great covenant of redemption. So, Jesus calling God Father is not like you calling God uh, Father, and most especially we understand we are Christians, that you calling God Father does not mean in some way you are God or in some way you are a, a deity that is contrary to Christian theology, that's contrary to reason, it's contrary to multiple passages in the Bible, but you have been adopted. That is your familial relationship to God. You have been saved by grace and through faith, if you have, in fact, been saved by grace and through faith. And as one who has been saved by grace and through faith, the Lord has given you His Spirit, and the Lord has adopted you into the family of God. Adoption is such a beautiful picture. Adoption is such a beautiful picture that is lived out in the lives of Christians. It is Christians overwhelmingly. It is Christians overwhelmingly that are involved in adoption. See this reality in this prayer. Understand this reality. Take this with you when you are praying, and remember this idea of being a part of the family of God. That's how you are approaching God because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has accomplished. That bridge fills the gap. There is peace between man and God. Dear Christian, if, if you stand before the Lord and you are deemed righteous before Him, you are doing that based upon the righteousness of Jesus, clothed in His righteousness. That's what Christ has earned for His people. Christ took upon Himself the fullness of the wrath of God that it may not fall upon God's people. Christ fulfilled the law in every way that you may be granted His righteousness. The word that we used here is called imputed. Imputed. There are some, there are some 
errant theologies that have this idea of infusing theology, that in some way, infusing righteousness, that in some way, like your good deeds and your righteousness is being infused with Christ's righteousness, and then you will stand before the Lord to be justified on account of that. It could not be further from the truth. There's nothing you could add to the righteousness of Christ. How do you change perfection? How do you increase perfection? Christ's righteousness did all that was necessary. Christ fulfilled the law in every way. What will you add to that? Christ took upon Himself the fullness of the wrath of God that it would not fall upon His people. What else would you take upon yourself? How would you in any way take upon yourself the eternal wrath of God? Don't believe this, these lies of purgatory. There is no such thing as purgatory. It's not a reality. It's not something you find within the Christian Scriptures. People have to go to books that aren't even in the Scriptures called the Apocrypha to even begin to try to justify this concept of purgatory. No. Romans 5 says it so clearly that you now have peace with God. If you're in Christ, Christian, you have peace with God. There's no amount of your good deeds, there's no amount of your efforts that is changing your position with God. It's not as though one day you are doing things in a certain way and He's happy with you, and then the next day you're not quite doing them right and He's unhappy with you. No, the Lord is seeing you, dear Christian, through the righteousness of Jesus, that is the lens through which you are seen. You are a part of the family of God, and even the Lord dealing with your sin, dealing and disciplining you. He is disciplining you as a father, as a father should be disciplining his children. Romans 8, 14 to 17. We see this beautiful idea of, of adoption communicated in this passage, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him." Look at the, the wording that Paul is using in this passage. You are not to fall into this, this slavery uh, uh, back into fear. Yes, Christian, you have a, a fear of God, but it is not a fear of God as though God is going to smite me at any moment if I don't do things right. You know, I heard someone one day talking about, about giving to the ministry of the church, and they said, you know what, if I don't give to the ministry of the church, you know, at some point I'm going to get a flat tire. God's going to get his money at some point. This is superstition. This is not a healthy way of seeing uh, how it is that we steward what God gives to us. We are giving to the ministry of the church because God has blessed us. God has called us to do that. That is what is best for us in the way in which we are living our lives. We must not look at this as though this is some kind of pagan superstition that I must check off these certain boxes through my own action, through my religious activities, to in some way make God happy with me or appease His wrath in some way. This is not a Christian concept. Christ has appeased the wrath of God in every way for the Christian. There is no more wrath to be dealt with, and you are being dealt with by God as one who is a child of God, as one who has been adopted 
This is very, very important to see this. The, the use of this term is, is very important in this concept of, of, do, of, of adoption. This is something that's often left out. People will talk about the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. You'll ask someone, what is the order of salvation? They'll say election you know, they'll say election, um, justification, sanctification, glorification. But you're missing a step. You're missing a very, very important step that's often overlooked. It's justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. See this picture. Prior to your conversion, the Bible says the wrath of God was, was over you. Someone being elected doesn't mean that the wrath of God wasn't over them. They, they, they are saved by grace and through faith. They're actually being saved. They're actually on the precipice of death from an eternal standpoint, but God has pulled them out of that. God has saved them, and He's not merely forgiven their sins. He's given them the righteousness of Jesus, and He's not merely forgiven their sins and given them the righteousness of Jesus. He has adopted them into His family, and that's why we have this endearing term Abba, Father. We see Paul use this term in Galatians 4, 3 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God." Look at Paul, how Paul applies this concept of adoption into the family of God. Look at, look at this idea here, 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 15. He says, What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does the believer share with the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, that I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul is taking texts from the Old Testament that were, that were originally written to the nation of Israel, and how it is that they were to behave, how it is that they were to be distinct from the other people that were around them. They were not to be like all of these other pagan nations. They were to live in a very distinct way, and he showed them how it is they were to live through the ceremonial law in the Mosaic Covenant. But Paul is applying this text to the Christian, even to an individual Christian, teaching Christians they should not be unequally yoked you should not be burdened down in the world. You should not be, dear Christian, let's apply this in a very, very clear way. There's many ways we could apply it, but you as a Christian are not to participate in this idea of missionary dating. You are not to go out and try to bring someone to faith in Christ Jesus by becoming involved with them romantically. That is not the way in which a Christian should act. You are to marry Christians. You are to seek relationship with other Christians. This is a, something that we must not be casual with. We, this is not even close to being up for debate, but we see Paul applying this very idea in, in a text that was taken 
out of the Old Testament that applied to the people of Israel. You know, this is something that we need to remember. We need to understand our relationship to God through our Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done. The church has not replaced Israel. That would be a poor understanding of the idea, this idea of a replacement theology, that the Lord had a plan here with national Israel, and well, that didn't work out, and so, well, let's deal with the church or the dispensational idea. Well, God had a plan with the Jews that didn't work out. Now He's going to have a plan with the church, and now He's going to reinstitute these sacrifices and the ceremonial law once again in another temple being built. This is not Reformed theology. This is not an understanding of Scripture that had came about prior to the 19th century. The church did not replace Israel. The church is Israel. The church always has been Israel. These are the people of God who are not God's children by natural descent. No one is a child of God by natural descent. There's many places we could go to back this up. Romans 9, beginning in verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because of his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. Abraham had other children. What we're looking at here is those who are saved by grace and through faith, those who were trusting in the Messiah to come Remember, the Messiah was prophesied early, early in the Scriptures. Right after the fall, the Lord made a declaration that He would send a child of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. I look forward to a sermon that Jim Renahan will be giving at our conference over that particular idea. We call that the proto-evangelum. This is the the first gospel, the proto-gospel, or that beginning good news that is there that happened right at the fall of man. The, The Lord made that promise. The Lord told the serpent that he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And that is how everyone who has been saved throughout history has been saved. It is by trusting on the Messiah to come. That is the only means that anyone has ever been saved. That's why the writer of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats forgives no sins. It's only through the perfect Lamb of God. The sacrifices occurred in the temple day in and day out, and they continued to burn. The sacrifices continued to burn. It was at the death of Christ where we saw the veil split open. Christ, the mediator, the greater high priest, made peace between God and man. If we were to say that one replaced Israel, it would not be the church. We would say Jesus. Jesus is the one that replaced Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. That's overwhelmingly what the writers of Scripture communicate in the New Testament. We see this in a very interesting way in Matthew 2 beginning in 14 and 15. This is a passage that's easy to look past. This is a passage that it's easy not to recognize the redemptive significance of what the gospel writer is saying here. 
Matthew 2, 14 and 15, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is very, very significant. I was in a hermeneutics class. I was in a class where they're, they're teaching you how to interpret the Bible. And we were talking about passages like this. And the professor said, You can't, you know, interpret Scripture like this, like this writer did. They had a special message from God. We must not apply these kinds of hermeneutics to how we understand things. But I think there's a great error there. There's a great problem because there's many times in Scripture where you see this redemptive flow of understanding coming out. And what Matthew is doing here is not saying, look, here's this passage that you never would have imagined applied to the Messiah, but it actually does. He's saying this, Israel is the one who, as it says in the Old Testament, was to be the light of the world. Israel was to be God's son. Israel was to represent God on the earth, just as Adam was to represent God there in the garden. Adam fell, Israel fell. Remember, Israel fell. They were taken out eastward and taken into captivity. But Jesus is that faithful son. Jesus is the true Israel. And that is why this passage out of Hosea is being applied to Jesus, because in Hosea we have the Lord speaking of Israel as being unfaithful, but Christ is the faithful one. Christ is going to do what Adam did not do. Christ is going to do what Israel did not do. He's saying that Jesus is the true Israel. We see this in Matthew's gospel following forward as well. Jesus then goes out of Egypt and he goes through the waters of baptism, just as Israel had gone through the waters of baptism there in the Red Sea. Jesus is then tested in the wilderness. We see a picture there of, of Adam being tested and falling. We see a picture there of Israel being tested in the wilderness, and they they fell. They were not faithful. It was not very long that they had been taken out of Egypt, that the Egypt within them began to manifest itself. But Jesus is worthy to be called God's Son because of His deity and also because of what He has done in His humanity. He has purchased this for His people. Jesus is the faithful one. He's the second Adam, represented all people. It is through Christ that this was accomplished. And this adoption that we have in Christ has happened because of who He is and what He has done. Dear friends, there, there are so many ways that religions seek to look to, to self-righteousness, seek to look to familial ties in some way, but we have God here adopting you, adopting you, dear Christian, into the family of God. And when you approach God in prayer, that is, that is a reality that you are bringing with you. Christ has purchased this for you. You will pray, God, forgive my sins. Do not lead me into temptation. You will pray these things. But it is with an understanding as well that Christ has done all that is necessary. Christ has granted to you all that you need whereby you can have peace with God. And at that time, in boldly approaching the throne, you were doing that. 
not because of anything good in yourself, but because of what Christ has done. Each and every time you pray, be mindful of this reality, this imminence of God, of God who had dwelt among us, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and has purchased for us peace with God. Lord, who has bridged that gap, that separation between man and God, through Christ and His finished work. And to those among us today, to those among us who sit among us, who sit among us in in self-righteousness, who who sit among us in, in their own goodness, who sit among us assuming that some relation to someone else is, is granting them a standing with God. Be mindful of what the Lord has done. Be mindful of what the Lord has done through Jesus Christ. Christ did all that was necessary. Christ accomplished all that was required to grant peace between man and God. And what would you do, dear friend? Would you add to that your, 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 your pedigree in some way? Would you add to that your, your own goodness or your own righteousness? Would you add to that a, a set of specific religious actions that you have done? I, I tell you this, you are like one who has a, a filthy garment and is seeking to clean your filthy garment with unwashed hands. The more that you seek to clean your garment, the filthier that you're going to make it. For you are like one who is trying to to bribe a judge. And you're trying to bribe a judge with that which is of little or no worth. Christ has done all that is necessary. See that reality. This is the the end of our boasting. This is the end of our, our own hope in the flesh and our own efforts. Christ has done all that we need. Dear friends, see the greatness of the law. See that that reality of the chasm that is there, that separation between man and God, God in His holiness, God in His greatness. See the law of God and the ways in which you, you, you fall short. See the ways in which God has commanded that our obedience follow in word and thought and deed, following even from the desire of our heart. See the ways in which you have fallen short Put no hope in yourself. Put no hope in the flesh. Trust not that you you have a natural relationship with God. So many times I've talked with people and they say, I've been a, a Christian my whole life. That is an incredible statement. That is a shocking statement. The Bible says that you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible says that you were born as an enemy of God. The Bible says that you were born in opposition to God and His kingdom. It's only by your awakening, it's only by you coming to a recognition of the ways in which you have broken God's law and seeing your hopelessness through your own efforts and seeing the hope in Christ alone, seeing the hope in what Jesus has done and trusting in Him, believing upon Him, Dear friend, don't don't walk out of the doors of this building trusting in your own efforts. Don't walk out of the doors of this building trusting in your own goodness, your own sufficiency. Don't walk out of the doors of this building trusting because your father was a Baptist preacher 
that you're in some way in a better standing with God that will be used for your judgment rather than your blessing. If you have a grandfather that is a pastor and you're trusting in your own efforts, see Christ in what He has done. See the fullness of what He has done and recognize the greatness of what He has accomplished in granting His people access to the throne of God, to the courts of God, by grace and through faith, through Christ's finished work. Come to Christ. Believe upon Christ. Cling to Christ. It's only in Christ, dear friends, that you can have peace with God.